And he continues through these generations to land with the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. And so Matthew takes the time here to make one block of genealogies, beginning with Abraham and ending with David. And here is the second of the three blocks of genealogies, each totaling 14 generations. It says that David was the father of Solomon, in verse 6. Verse 7 says that Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph of Jehoshaphat. And he continues through 14 names, ending in verse 11 by saying, There was a man named Josiah, and he was the father of Jeconiah, and his brother in the time of the deportation of Babylon. And so that ends the second series of three. From Abraham to David, from David to Jeconiah, and then Israel is gone. What he's giving is a timeline, a genealogy, a history of Israel, the people of God. And so they're removed. And here's the third and the final section of the genealogies. And after the deportation of Babylon, it says in verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltil, and Shiltil was the father of Zerubbabel. And it's in Zerubbabel's time that they began to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Babylon. And he goes the whole way to the end, and where we find our Lord and Savior, in verse 16, says, Now Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. In verse 18, we find the story of Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And here we have Matthew beginning his gospel with the beginning of the life of Christ. The word literally starts off by saying, Biblos Geneos, which is the book of generations, the book of Genesis. 
in the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. As we've seen through a series of stories in the past few weeks, that there is a very significant drama played out through all of Scripture. And it is nothing more than the drama of man and his almost incalcitrant rebellion and hard-heartedness toward God and the Lord in his immense, immense love. A love that is bottomless and a love that should be explored in every page of Scripture to find out exactly to what extent does it mean when we say God is love. That God actually loves as much as he would even dare to be believed in these promises of old. And the drama of all scripture is that being played out. Is us exhausting what would seem to be the bank account of God's love. And then there always being more left. And then when it think, after so much time in history, and so much betrayal of constantly wandering and resisting the Holy Spirit, there's more. There's even more. And the whole course, I believe, of what will be heaven is realizing that we have yet still now only scratched the surface of what we call the love of God. That even now, in your life, you have not even broached the shorelines of the ocean of God's grace in Jesus Christ. On your worst day, with your worst guilt, and everything you could possibly have to condemn you, you have barely dipped your toe upon the ocean of His grace. God is love. The drama set forward for us in this gospel is amazing. And it's hard to back up from just reading what would seem to be a list of genealogies to find exactly what it is Matthew is saying here about the Lord. It is a drama, and like all good stories, have a climax. Divergent facts produce, or divergent characters produce a dilemma. That dilemma leads itself to drama. That drama must find resolution. There's a knot that needs to be untied. There is an antithesis. There is a hero. There is a villain. There is a story that always has to find its resolution. And here in the gospel, we have the story of all stories. As we saw before, Earlier last week with Hosea 11, it says this in Hosea 11, 9. 11.2 actually says, The more I called Israel, the more they went away. There's your, there's your drama. It is not so much a football game in which two people are diametrically opposed trying to go opposite direction. The reality is it's us running this way and God trying to find us, running the same direction. And every time he gets close enough to make a covenant with us through Abraham or David or whoever it might be, we betray it. We stop him in his face. We spit upon him. We abuse him. And then we run away more. 
And then the story you would think would be the end every time. But the story isn't over, and you are here, and the world still exists. He lets it keep happening. And he picks up the pieces and begins to chase us down again as we run down the street corner. This is the narrative. This is the, this is the climax. And the climax of it all comes now to him finally providing something different than this remarkable cycle that you cannot find anywhere from the, every page of Scripture different than Adam and Abraham and Jacob and David and everyone of old. It was this cycle of us running from God and him chasing us even more. Here is something different, something new. God has entered the drama. If all of this life could just be one large movie, one large play, here the director has written a new page in which he Finally frustrated with seeing the same old reruns of sin and repentance and needing of grace. And always rebelling and never changing. Gets out of his seat. Comes around the corner stairs. And stands up on the stage. And enters into the drama. He is born, born into this thing we call the world. And he will show us again what it means when he says that he loves us. So Isaiah said, again, Isaiah 11, 9. I am not a man. I am the Holy One of Israel, he said. And I will love you. My heart turns within me. I am angry. I am angry, but I don't have burning anger, he says in Hosea. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I give you up, O Israel? There is a love he has where he says, My love is not like your love. I am not a man. I do not love fickly. I do not love to only a limit. I do not love to the point I give up. I am not a man like that. I am love, we are told in 1 John, that God is love. It is not an attribute. It is not a thing he appends to himself. It is not augmented to his deity. It is of his own nature that he is love and he cannot deny himself. And if he promised to save you and bless you and forgive you, then he must do so. He has bounded by his own immutable nature. Therefore, his unchangeableness requires him to change. There is a more fundamental nature to God. That cannot change. God does not change. But that does not mean he cannot take on to himself new attributes and abilities. Because he is love and his love will not fail. He will become a man. So that he might never change and never be found false or a liar. He will love you to the end. That the God who is not man will become man. So that he will be the one true God who is love. This is amazing, the story opening. The drama, the real drama of all dramas. This is why, this is why the gospel is the gospel. The stories you believe will either condemn you to hell. 
or will bring you to salvation. Your eternity is wrapped up in the stories of which you believe. Realize this, that there is only one way God has chosen to save the world. And that is through a story. The gospel. If you believe this gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. You think, how remarkable is it that it would be a story? A story. Just any story. Well, you would say, I can't just believe any story. I won't believe any story. I don't want to just believe a story about Jesus. I'm scientific. I'm enlightened. I have this idea. I have that idea. You do not. You are not enlightened and you are not scientific. It is impossible to not believe stories. It is impossible. You, by the very nature of your creation, must believe stories. The question is, now which stories will you believe? You cannot not breathe. It is impossible to not breathe. It is impossible to not have faith. You must have faith. All you have is faith. For you are man and not God. You do not know everything. And by the nature of not knowing everything, you must always have confidence in something that you do not completely know. Whether that be astrophysics, or whether that be what's around the next corner when you walk the hall. You do not know. Your whole life is predicated on faith. And so the story of the gospel is... The same way that your life is predicated on the breath that God gives you every day. Your life is predicated on the faith that you exercise every day. Now the question is now what faith will you use? What story will you believe? And here on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not believe this story, if you do not find yourself in this narrative, if this is not the meta-narrative that guides all the other narratives and interpretive principles of your whole life, you are not saved. You do not know Jesus. For this is how God has chosen to save the world. Ironically labeled, quote, the various other stories we might believe. There is the idea of the gospel being destroyed or ruined by other narratives. Other ways we interpret the world. There is what people call Christian nationalism. Think of this. Jesus was born into one nation. This nation is wrapped up with a bunch of people. And in the genealogies we just read, not even all of those people that I read their names were even Jews. It's not about the nation, you see. But some people get wrapped up into the fact that there's a Christian nation and there are these people over here and these people over there. And what they do is they create a narrative. You cannot help but create a narrative of us versus them. All of human history is just us versus them. And of course, there's this thing called the woke gospel, where people have to go to sleep again with that gospel. Do not wake up to the woke gospel. But the woke gospel is a similar problem, where everyone sees everything in race. There are this problem in sinful things that happen with this race to that race, and that race to this race. But the real gospel, the gospel that we have here in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is a gospel that breaks up into categories. But only two categories again. Those who are dead in their sin. And those who are dead to sin. That is it. That is it. His name, the angel says to him, is Jesus. But he will save his people from their sin. That is it. 
That is the narrative. That is our gospel. And every drama, every dilemma comes down to categorizing things in two main points. So that there would be some drama, some antithesis to it all. And we as Christians say there are only two types of people in the world. There are those who are dead to their sin. And there are those who are dead in sin. There are those who are far from Christ. And there are those who are close to Christ. And the amazing gospel here is that Jesus has come close. He has come into our humanity, born of this woman. We've noticed, you see, before being a Christian, before conversion, you might have known something of Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus, you say. Or the Jesus of religion. Jesus that, there's this Jesus that people worship, but I don't see him that way. Things have changed. The gospel shapes everything. And so that the narrative of your life is altered. And you don't see Christ that way anymore. You see him as he truly is. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From from now therefore, now on therefore, we regard no one, no one according to the flesh, he says. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. This is the power of the gospel to change the world. There was a time when Paul thought of Jesus according to the flesh. He thought of him as some aberrant Jewish teacher and his following needing to be snuffed out. He did not see Jesus as the Son of God, the Lord of glory, God incarnate, the Savior of the world. He saw him only according to the flesh. But he says, now that I have not seen Jesus according to the flesh any further, I also see no one else according to the flesh. The reason this gospel saves is because it transforms all other ways you interpret the world. Therefore, Because we regard Christ according to the flesh no longer. We regard no one in our life according to the flesh. That is the old patterns of thinking. The old sinful ways of accounting for people. Seeing people as means only to an end. Instead of just loving them for who they are. The power of the gospel of Jesus is that when you see his love for you. You see your love for others. Not only just seeing people as black and white and as a race here and a race there. But now we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't care about race. We only love them as those who are dead in their sin and need Christ. Or those who are dead to sin because they're alive in Christ. We regard no one according to the flesh based on their nationality or their person or their prestige. We don't care what their job title is. We don't care what they wear. We don't care what they drive. We don't care where they live. We only regard Everyone according to the spirit, the spirit of the age that is coming, which is the age of one new heaven and new earth, where there will only be those who are dead in their sin and only those who are alive in Christ. And we regard no one else outside of these categories. This is the gospel. This is the narrative. And this is the reality of the drama that Jesus has entered because he has been born of a woman. He has come into our existence because he, we have no regard for race because there is one human race and there is one Christ who is born in this human race. And that is all that matters to us from the beginning and to the end. And so the narrative of the gospel finds this in the closeness of Jesus Christ. And so from here we'll look 
at the significance of all this. The meaning of why we say the gospel saves. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves because in this and only this, God has come close enough to actually save you. Remember, the Lord is omnipresent. He is in this room. He manifests himself in wonderful, marvelous ways and glorious ways. He can impress upon your mind so powerfully you would fall to your face now on the floor. He moves past and forth depending on how he interchanges with various people across this whole world. The determining factor, the reality on how he would do such a thing is based on this gospel. Your position to Jesus Christ is a position of either being far from God or being close to God. Is he close enough to save you? So the story goes. The story of all stories. This drama continues. In which Mary is betrothed to Joseph, we're told. And before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And the betrothal at that time was a formal contract. It wasn't something like engagement now, in which you could just forget it and leave and maybe change your mind. That was being married. It was betrothal for a whole year until there was a public ceremony in which the actual marriage was consummated and they lived together from then on. But that whole previous year of betrothal was just as legal, just as legitimate as what our marriage is today. And so therefore when Joseph naturally finds out that his marriage has already been compromised, the betrothal has already been undone, we're told that he is a just man. He's a good man, a loving man. He doesn't want to bring any more public disgrace to her and decided to try to divorce her quietly. And the story of Israel, remember how Israel got its name from Jacob who had the vision of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Angels have always been working to accomplish this thing. How come you haven't seen an angel? Well, are you connected directly with exactly how God is saving the world at this moment? You notice jo- Joseph managed to get a few angelic visitations in the next few verses. I haven't had one yet. But then again, here's the reality. Jacob was promised, as he put his head on a rock, that he had a dream of, of a ladder in which the angels of God were ascending and descending. And he was promised, I will bring you back to this land and you will be blessed. The implication of the dream is, I will command my angels concerning this promise, it will be accomplished. This is that same promise. The angels have been going up and down the ladder for the same purpose. So that Israel might find blessing. The promises given to Jacob are finding fruition here. That's why Jesus says you will see the son of man coming. On which the angels descend and ascend. Referring to himself. When Satan went to tempt Jesus said. Why don't you throw yourself off the cliff? Psalm 91 says he'll command his angels concerning you. There's a unique angelic mission here to save the world in which there are superior beings who are actually accomplishing the work of God in Jesus Christ and that work is accomplished. But here Joseph has multiple angelic beings telling him, by the way, this is a big deal. Don't worry. It's from the Holy Spirit. Stick with her. Because you know obviously you're going to need a little bit of help with that one. But it was for the purpose of completing the original promises of old. 
So, G- so Joseph decides to stay with her. And he's confirmed again, and he's confirmed by himself that this is of the Holy Spirit. And so the genealogy, the story of Jesus Christ, the beginning of his life, as we said, it breaks off into three categories. The first genealogy is 700 years from Abraham to David. And what's amazing is Matthew only covers 700 years in 14 generations. So we know for sure that this genealogy is not meant to be taken absolutely literally, as though it is completely exhaustive. It's only 15, 14 generations in 700 years. What he's giving is a true genealogy, but he's compacting it to say something significant about Christ. And from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, he starts off with the unique people called the Israel, the people of God that began with Abraham. And then Jacob, who first was given the name Israel, and his sons that followed, there were many tribes into a nation called Israel. And in that time, in that genealogy, we have Moses. Moses who built a tent and we're told the glory of God came into that tent and filled up that tent with its glory. And that is what made Israel, Israel. It is not because they were ethnic or racial or in any way distinct because of these reasons. They were Israel because unlike any other nation, they built a tent and the glory of God filled it. God's presence was with them in a unique and remarkably powerful way. The second part of the genealogy begins in verse 6 where we're told from Solomon to another man named Jeconiah covering another 400 years in 14 generations. And it was Solomon who upgraded the tent to a temple. He made a very large palatial building. And we're told, 1 Kings 8, that the glory of God filled that temple. That no one could even enter it. They all fell down and worshipped. Because the closeness of God was manifestly present to this people. No other nation had this. A God dwelling so closely and in their midst. Intentionally, for the point of Matthew with these genealogies, the story continues. So much so that we are told by this last king, Jeconiah, that it's gone. It all crumbles. Babylon comes in and destroys it all, tears down the temple. Around that time, around the time of this man named Jeconiah, Ezekiel had a prophecy. He had a prophecy in chapters 9, 10, and 11, in which he saw the glory of God. And it was standing at the threshold of the temple. And then he saw the glory of God and it moved to the east gate of the temple. And then in Ezekiel 11, he saw the glory of God and it moved all the way to the east hill, the Mount of Olives, outside the city from the temple. And Ezekiel said, the glory of God has left the people of God, Israel. Shortly after, the whole thing was destroyed because ultimately it was just a building of bricks. The only uniqueness of it was the glory of God in them. What made Israel Israel, the people of God, is they actually had the glory of God in their very midst. He was close enough to save them, close enough to protect them. There was no army in this world that was going to take them so far as God's glory was with them. And the sure enough prophecy of Ezekiel is the glory is gone 
Pack your bags because you will fall to Babylon. And sure enough, that happened. And if you're reading this genealogy, I have to bring this out, the third part. He breaks it off again in the third part of the genealogy, starting in verse 12, where it covers another 600 years. And he speaks about a man named Shiltil who gave birth to a son named Zerubbabel. And that man named Zerubbabel built the temple again. And this is something that can't be overlooked, even though it often is. In Ezra 6, they rebuilt that temple and nothing happened. There was no glory. It was just a building. And they sacrificed their animals. And they were happy. And they played music. And it was good. The worship band was doing great that day. But there was no glory. No one fell on the floor. No one was too afraid of the quaking of God's magnificent presence to approach the building. We're not told any of this. And we're told in Ezra 3 that the ones who were older, the older priests, the ones who knew about the previous temple, they wept. And they said, this isn't the same. I know it's a long explanation and a lot of people say in you tell sermons you need to tell funny stories and bring it all together. I'd like to tie this together. Why did I just do that? The narrative. Is that it? I hope that you just stuck with me for this. Is that it? You need to know this when you don't believe God loves you. When you build that next temple, and where is God? When you have a loved one who is dying, where is he? When you think there's no way he could love you again, that he could fill your heart with his spirit, and that you could know that you are your father's daughter, that you are your father's son, and that he loves you, you are the apple of his eye. If you need to know that, you must remember what Matthew has just told you through this genealogy. He is telling these whole Jewish people that know the story so well, I had to take the time to draw it out for us today because it's not necessarily our story. But it is. That's why it's here. They know about Zerubbabel. They know about the second temple. They know it didn't go back the way it used to be. And if you ever think, oh, I wish for the good old days when I was closer to God. I wish for the good old days back when I was closer to God. Do not believe the lie. Do not believe that there is any measure of God's love that cannot be outmatched by your sin. Haggai, Ezekiel, they knew this. They knew about the temple. There was nothing more than a building of bricks. There was no glory. There was no God here. Where is the one true and living God? Is he still alive today? Are all the miracles and all the stories and everything in the Bible just stories? Is he alive? And here, Matthew comes 
with all these prophecies saying that there should be greater glory. There will be greater glory to come. The glory of God will come back in the people of God in the midst of Israel. He brings all that together to say, and there was a boy. And he was born of a woman. And the very Spirit of God, the presence of God, came upon that woman. And the glory of God incarnated himself with human flesh. As though you could try to run from him and run from him and run from him. And think, would he still love me? Would he still accept me? Would he still take me? He comes so much further and says, I'm done with the building thing. I'm done with the temple thing. I'm coming down to get you. I'm coming down to save you. I will take the blood that you have. I will take the breath that you have. I will take the life that you have. And I will live it for you. I will breathe it for you. I will bleed it for you. I will save you. That's amazing. He just rewrit the whole script, put himself in the play so that you might be saved. The pause of where is his glory, where is his presence, was only the climactic buildup for the crescendo of the climax of all stories, of all stories, is that he loves you more than you could even think or dream or believe. That he redid the whole thing so that he come here to save you. And by the way, the angel says, his name will be Jesus. For he will save you from your sin. How beautiful is that? No more temple, no more blood, no more goats. It's all just a game. It was all just a show. It was leading to this, that you will truly be saved. Merry Christmas. How beautiful is that story? There is no other gospel. There is no other name by which men can be saved. We'll close with this reality. That we know one thing. How far will God come to save you? If you're hungry, someone can give you a few dollars and you can eat a meal. If you're sick... Maybe you have an affection. A doctor that you barely know the name to can give you some antibiotics and he will heal you. And if I ask you a year later what was his name, you might not know. But there's a certain type of salvation that comes through adoption. And that's the image that the Lord loves. Notice we're told without any reservation... As though it would almost be a natural question. Wait a minute, I did take the time to read the genealogy. And now I actually have a question. We're told that it goes from one male to another male to another male. All these kings of the nation of Israel. From Abraham down to David and Solomon. And then it gets to this man named Joseph. And then it says, and Joseph was married to Mary. And Mary bore a son. And then you naturally say... Well, that whole string, that chain of genealogies seemed a little superfluous, don't you think? Considering that the last one, the last link in the chain, the last man in this whole genealogy didn't actually have a son. And you realize the interaction between God and Joseph is adoption. This is not your son. It's my son. He is born of my spirit. But you will raise him and you will name him. And this is him. The Lord adopted himself into our humanity. He adopted himself into the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king of Israel. 
Why would he become a king of Israel otherwise? That is an ultimate downgrade. The only way he could ever be king of Israel is by adoption. He's already king of the world. But he is adopted into this monarchy. So that Athanasius, and I love what Athanasius says, ancient, ancient uh, church father, he became what we are, that he might make us what he is. He became what we are, so that he might make us what he is. He became the adopted son of man, so that you might be adopted sons and daughters of God. And so, someone might give you a meal and save you from hunger. Someone might give you some penicillin and save you from disease. But adoption, the salvation, is God close enough in your life to really save you? Are you adopted in this category? I'll never forget the story I had with a social worker. And she told me to explain. She explained adoption to me. And she said, here is a story. I know a child who hides her food in the closet because she does not know if her parents will come in and take it from her. She has cigarette burns across the back of her shoulders. She wakes up in the middle of the night almost in fear thinking she's going to be beat from her sleep. And she can't sleep through the night because of it. He adopted himself so that you would come into his family. A child can be given a bed, a dry roof, and a pillow, but that's not salvation. How close is he? A child needs a name, an identity, a pillow with a bedtime story to wake up and be tucked in, to laugh, to cry, to play, to run. Someone who can spend a quarter of their life, if not more, raising this child every day. And here is God's image of how he would save you. He will not pass you a few dollars. He will not just give you medicine. He will be with you. Do you realize what that means? He is with you. He is by your side. He has adopted you. He has invested in you. Every waking day, every sleeping hour, He is with you. With you. You are in His home. He dwells inside you. It is not as though you just approach Him and think, maybe He'll give me some money this time. It's not as though you approach Him and think, maybe He'll tolerate me this time. He has adopted you. Every waking minute of His life is with you. He has brought you in the home so that your whole life would be His life. And all because of this, that He would seek to be adopted by a mere man named Joseph. The predicated work around that he would have the right to bring you into his home, which is really what we all need. And this is our gospel. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you've adopted us and that your love, you are, Lord. Lord, we know the story. We know the prophecy of numbers. That Balaam, he said, I see him now and I behold him near. This star shall come from Jacob, and this scepter shall rise out of Israel. Lord, you are that star that came through the nation of Israel. You rose up high. It is the star that the wise men will see this Christmas Eve. Father, we thank you. that You've made yourself king over us. And ruled us and reigned over us so that you would also make yourself father over us.
and love us and bring us in. Lord, please let us never forget your love for us. And let us never believe any lie that is contrary to what we have in Christ. That he was born of a woman. In Jesus' name, amen.